Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. What if you knew that your departure from planet Earth was imminent and you had the opportunity to write a letter to those in your life that you love that are Christ followers to try to communicate to them what you believed were the most important essentials about following Christ? What would your letter say? Well, we actually have a letter like that written not only to the first century believers, but to us as well from a very encouraging source, the Apostle Peter. And I say encouraging because the Apostle Peter was not this spiritual superhero could, who could do no wrong that none of us could identify with. Uh, he failed often and spectacularly. Uh, he was the one who had the opportunity to walk on water beside Jesus, but his faith faltered and he began to sink like a rock. He was the one who at the most crucial moment did not stand up for Jesus, but instead denied him three times. And in a story you may not be as familiar with, if you go to Galatians chapter 2, he was the one who in the early days of the Christian faith and the, the, the formation of the church, he began to compromise the gospel until the apostle Paul confronted him in a nose-to-nose -nose kind of showdown theologically and Peter saw where he was wrong. So Peter was like us. He sought to follow Jesus, but he failed often. But his faith was such that we have so much we can learn from what he wrote to us. And so we begin this morning a series called Followship. Not fellowship, we use that term a lot, but followship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And the book of Second Peter gives us some rich instruction. Uh, that book is a, a book of encouragement. You'll see that. It's a book of instruction, to be sure. And there's a section in which it is a book of warning. Uh, the book of 2 Peter was the last letter that Peter wrote before his death. Scholars believe it was written from Rome, where he was in prison, somewhere around A.D. 67, just before his execution, which church tradition tells us was by crucifixion, but upside down at his request, because he did not feel worthy to die in the same way that his Savior had died. And the book of 2 Peter is one of, the, one of the least studied books in the New Testament. 1 Peter is much more familiar, it seems, to Bible students, but 2 Peter doesn't get as much study and attention, and that's regrettable because it has so much to teach us. And interestingly enough, 2 Peter was the last book to be added to the canon of Scripture. If you're not familiar with that term, canon, C-A-N-O-N, simply refers to the groups of letters, ancient writings, the gospel accounts, the epistles, the, uh, the book of Revelation, and so forth. Those books, the Bible is actually 66 books, 
It was the last book to be added to the canon of Scripture when the early church fathers were seeking God's leadership to know what should become a part of Holy Scripture for the generations to follow and what should not. And Second Peter was the very last book that was added. It is a companion book to 1 Peter, both of which were letters from the Apostle Peter, and both of them were written with a pastor's heart. You see that in 1 Peter in chapter 5, verse 12. Look at that verse on the screen. Peter said in that letter, My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. And I'll tell you why that statement was significant because of the purpose of 1 Peter in a moment. But then in 2 Peter, we, we hear that similar kind of pastor's heart coming through in chapter 3, verse 1, where he said in 2 Peter, This is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I've tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. <laughs> the books are similar, but they're not alike. First Peter was written to warn them about persecution from outside the church. But Second Peter was to warn them about heresy from inside the church, false doctrine heretical teaching that would come from inside the church. And of the two threats, the threat from inside the church was the greater threat. So let's begin our verse-by-verse -verse study. And in just uh, four weeks, we will go through the entire letter. It's a, it's a brief letter, three chapters, uh, 60, what is it, 61 verses, so not long at all, but we will take each verse one at a time and see what the apostle had to say to us. So, Second Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. He said, this letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. He was writing to those who shared the faith, who had that common bond. And you know, people bond over a lot of different things. They bond over common interests. Uh, we have something here at the church the last Saturday of every month called uh, Coffee and Cars. And, and I don't own a classic car, but I love classic cars. And I, I like to show up and just walk around and meet people and look at their classic vehicles. I mean, we've seen some incredible ones. We just have a great time, and we enjoy that common bond. Uh, sometimes I'll be walking around meeting people at church and somebody will have on a Houston Astros shirt and we have a bond right away. I've been an Astros fan since the 70s and I can talk Astros with anybody. We have that common. People bond over hobbies, uh, hunting or fishing or crafts or whatever it, it might be. But of all the things that we could have as a common bond, the strongest and most important is the bond that fellow Christ followers share over our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the strongest bond. And that's what Peter was writing to them upon that basis. He said, I'm writing to you because we have the same allegiance. 
We have the same calling. We have the same destiny, the same eternal home we have in common that we have all received God's gift of grace. And when we received it, we were all undeserving sinners. He goes on in verse 1 to say, This faith was given to you not because you deserved it, because of the justice and fairness, some translations say the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. And he was saying to those early Christ followers, and he is saying to us that we are on a common mission to follow him, to serve him, and to grow in our faith in him. And so he says in verse 2, May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. As you grow. So I think we ought to stop right there in the text and ask ourselves, are we growing? Are we growing in our spiritual journey? Are we growing in the maturity of our faith? Are we growing in our spiritual formation? I like that term. Or, or have we plateaued somehow unintentionally? Or even worse, are we regressing in our fellowship of Jesus? We will see in Peter's words today that though spiritual growth is a work of God, it's a supernatural transformative work of his Holy Spirit in us, and though that is completely true and vitally essential, we will also see that we have a role, that there are some things that are involved that are determined by us. So if I can put it this way for our big idea in a very simple term, what you do with what you have is up to you. It's up to you. Because God has done his part. Look at verse 3. By his divine power, Peter said, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. He has given us everything we need for living a godly life. If you're a Christ follower, whether you know it or not, you are in a powerful spiritual battle. There's spiritual warfare going on, much of which we, we see evidences of, much of which we cannot see. But there is spiritual warfare. We are in a spiritual battle. And Peter is is encouraging those early believers and us by saying everything you need, God has given you. Uh, if you were in the congregation last week, I, I closed the sermon by telling a little bit of my own personal story. And as a part of it, I mentioned that my father was killed on the battlefield in Korea when I was six weeks old. But I didn't tell the backstory. And that's this, that uh, of those troops, those United States Army troops that were stationed in Japan as a part of the occupation force that were sent into battle hastily when unexpectedly the communist North Koreans broke across the 38th parallel invading democratic South Korea in an effort to take away their freedom and to turn that whole peninsula into uh, a communist nation and the United States 
States troops and others were quickly sent into battle. They were sent into battle with, with leftover, antiquated, ineffective World War II weaponry. And what they didn't know as they landed there in Korea was that the, the communist North Koreans had been equipped with what was then state-of-the-art Russian military weaponry. And the battle was greatly uneven. And many of our troops lost their lives, including my father. Why? Because they were not well equipped. Can I say to you in the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in as Christ followers, we are not ill-equipped. He has given us everything we need. He's given us everything we need. Every piece of spiritual armor that we need for protection is ours. Every spiritual weapon necessary to do battle with our spiritual enemy is ours. We are fully equipped, but we must employ that which we've been given. And so he goes on to say, verse 4, and because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In other words, God has equipped you with all you need to live for him. Our failure comes when we do not employ that which we've been given. When we do not put on the spiritual armor and we're susceptible to the enemy's attack. When we do not employ the spiritual weapons that we've been given. When we do not claim and possess the promises that God has made to those who follow him in faith in Jesus Christ. The Scripture is filled, and I've talked about this on numerous occasions, the Scripture is filled with if-then promises to believers. If you will do this, God will do that. But we must take care of our part so that God can pour his power into us. And so since there is both the dynamic of the supernatural work of God and the human response of Christ's followers, Peter says this in verse 5, In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Make every effort to respond to God's promises. For generations, there has been a debate about the, the dynamic, the, the role of God's sovereign work in each of our lives and the, the works, the effort that we as weak and, and sinful human beings must, must have. And, and so at one end of the spectrum, there are those who say it's all of God. It has nothing to do with us. It's completely a work of God, and we're almost like passive observers. 
And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are those who say, you've got to work hard. You've got to do all the right things. In fact, you don't even know if you're saved uh, unless you are doing everything right. And you won't even know if you're uh, saved until the end of your journey as if there is some invisible standard out there and some uh, hidden heavenly accountant that's keeping track and we don't know until the end and he, he tallies up the ledger. And can I tell you, both of those extremes are wrong and unbiblical. The reality is there is a dual dynamic that is constantly at work that interacts with one another. There is the sovereign work of God, a supernatural dynamic in our lives through the Holy Spirit. And then there is the willful response of the followers of Christ. If that were not true, how could there be so many Christians that you and I have known that have fallen into sin and become ineffective in their life for Christ? So Peter says, and I don't want us to miss this. I'm, that's why I'm spending this much time. Make every effort to respond to God's promises. What you do with what you have is up to you. And so Peter doesn't just kind of leave that as a vague image out there. He then moves into specifics, some things that ought to be in our lives as we make every effort to respond to the promises and presence of God. It's similar to the Apostle Paul's uh, list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And so he's about to identify for you and me some things that ought to be present in our lives, that God makes it possible by his Spirit to be developed in us. So look at what he says as verse 5 continues. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. There's the first one. Moral excellence. This one's not hard to figure out. It's not complicated. He's simply saying, do what's right. Do what's right. Do what's right all the time when people are looking and when nobody's looking. Do what's right when it brings you a benefit or reward or when it costs you to do what's right. Do what's right because you have character. Do what's right because you have integrity. Not for what you can get out of it, but because you love Jesus. Do what's right. Moral excellence. And then he says, supplement your moral excellence with knowledge. With knowledge. In other words, never stop being a learner. Never stop studying the Word of God. Never stop learning how to apply that in practical ways to your everyday life. Be a constant learner. Be growing in your knowledge. Are, are, you, are you more knowledgeable about the things of Scripture this year than you were last year? Are you, are you growing in Him? And then supplement your knowledge with self-control. Self-control. He's saying don't be undisciplined. Now, there are a lot of areas of our life that that could apply to. Some of us need to be more disciplined in our physical bodies and our weight and stuff like that. But what he's really talking about here, those things are important, is be disciplined in your spiritual life. 
in recent years, there's a, a craze across America, especially among the young, for uh, fitness and, and physical health. And, and that's a good thing. And it's created the whole fitness industry, and 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 there's great discipline going on for for some young people in their in their physical lives. But can I say, for the follower of Christ, if you spend more time in workouts than the Word of God, your priorities are upside down. Should we be physically fit? Of course we should. But how much more important that we are disciplined spiritually? Do you have the discipline of, of regular time with the Lord, of time in the Word, of developing your spiritual life? Supplement your knowledge with self-control. And then he says, supplement your self-control with patient endurance. What's he talking about there? I think he's saying that when difficulty comes into your life, don't just whine and complain, but persevere, endure. For every struggle that comes into our life, God has a purpose. He has a redeeming purpose, for whether he allows it or directly sends it. He has a purpose for it. So don't just complain and whine and moan as if God owes us something better, but endure, persevere, have patient endurance. And then he says, your patient endurance should be supplemented with godliness. Godliness. Now, I have to admit that word puzzled me a little bit. What, is, what does he mean like godliness? So I went to the Greek dictionary to see that specific word in the original language, and, and the synonym that they used there was piety. We don't even use that word. When, when you hear pious, what do you think of? Uh, when I hear that, I kind of think of the Amish. You familiar with the Amish people? And they, they live kind of a separated life, and, and they don't want anything from the, the culture, from the world to, to infect them. And I, I admire them to a degree, but I don't think we're all called to, you know, live in a separate community somewhere uh, else because we'll never win the world of Christ if we're not in the world. The Scripture says be in the world, not of the world. So, so what, what does that mean in the context of those of us who live in the midst of a, of a secular culture? I think it means that there ought to be a difference about the demeanor of our lives. There ought to be an innocence about us. There ought, to, there ought to be this kind of unselfish humility where, where we, we don't allow ourselves to, to think like people who don't know the Lord. We, we look at the world in a different way because of our relationship with Christ. Godliness. And then he says, supplement your godliness with brotherly affection. I think simply here it just means we ought to love one another. I, I think there would be far less church fights and church splits and angry people if we just loved one another like we ought to. Because if we do that, we don't slander, we don't gossip, we don't treat each other badly, and there's unity in the body, brotherly affection. And then finally he says, supplement your brotherly affection with love for everyone. I think that means we simply love people who aren't like us. 
who don't think like we think. Their ideology is different. Their politics are, are different. The way they, they act or maybe dress or whatever is different. But we ought to have a love for everyone. You know, that's, that's what got Jesus the most criticism from the Pharisees. That he loved those people who were far from God. He was known as a friend of sinners. And Peter goes on to say, verse 8, the more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think he's saying with all those things, listen, this faith thing is serious. It's serious. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you haven't joined a country club. You've enlisted in an army. And godly living demands intentionality and resolve. But sadly, not everyone who professes Christ takes it that seriously. Here's what Peter said to those who would discount or ignore what he had just challenged us to do. Verse 9, But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. Had a conversation recently with a young man who was not a Christ follower. And I asked him, I said, what's, what's the greatest thing that keeps you from considering the Christian faith? He said, the, the, the thing that does it for me is I look at so many who claim to be Christians and yet they act so differently than Jesus. And that hit me hard and it broke my heart, but I, I couldn't argue with him because it's true. Thankfully, not all, but there are those who claim the name of Christ and yet act in very un-Christ-like ways. Why, why would there be such a disconnect between what someone says they believe and how they act in their life? Well, I think a lack of spiritual growth and maturity grows out of an ungrateful heart. Peter says, they've forgotten that they've been cleansed from their sins. We understand that we don't, we don't live in a certain way in order to gain salvation. Those who have that kind of salvation by works theology, it, to me it would seem like they're, just, they're living in a trap trying to measure up. They don't understand that the grace of God is what saves us. So we understand we're not saved because we live up to certain standard. But what is it that should motivate us to live that way, to do the things that Peter just talked about? What's our motivation? It ought to be a grateful heart that God saved us, though we didn't deserve it. And so he challenges us, verse 10. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things, and you'll never fall away. Not work hard to gain salvation. Work hard to show that you have 
Work hard to validate your faith, to authenticate your faith, to show it as being real. And he says, if you do these things, you won't fall away. What I think he's saying there is not that you won't lose your salvation. I think he's saying, if you live in that way, it shows that it is real. It is genuine because you can't fake that kind of life. It's a work of God. And so our lives show whether we're serious about our faith or not. And then Peter ends this passage with a kind of a strange statement. But it ignites our imagination. Look at verse 11. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A grand entrance. The contemporary English version puts it this way. He will give you a glorious welcome into his kingdom that will last forever. Let me tell you how that verse became real to me this week. One of our sweet senior adult members, Laura Timmons, who she and her husband Tommy were here when Cindy and I came 31 years ago, and they've been faithful church members. Tommy went home to be with the Lord a couple of years ago, but Laura has just been a, one of those sweet Christian grandmothers that everybody uh, loves. But uh, she called me a few weeks ago, and she said, uh, Pastor, I don't want you to think that, that uh, I've just quit coming. She said, I'm going to go on a month-long trip. Uh, I'm going to go see my sister in San Antonio, and then together we're going to go to Georgia to see our other sister who's, who's been very ill. So I'm going to be gone a month. Don't worry about me. So I said, thanks, Laura, for, for letting me know. Well, she indeed went to San Antonio, and her and her sister went to Georgia, and they got there just a week before their sister died. And then just a few days after that, Laura became ill with pneumonia and AFib. And we got the call that the doctors there in the hospital in Georgia had said, uh, she's, she's not going to survive this. And it broke Cindy in my, my heart because we really were close uh, to her and, and Tommy. And so Cindy called Lori, their daughter, and said, you know, can, you, can we just get on a conference call? And uh, only the family members were allowed to come in, into the hospital and be by our bedside. And we just, we just want to pray over her one more time. And so they did that. And Cindy, of course, prayed the sweetest prayer. And, and then as I was praying, I had just been studying this verse. And I believe Laura could hear us because she, would, she, couldn't, she couldn't speak words, but, but she could, could groan a little bit. And we would pray something, and, and so I, I really believe she could understand what we were saying. And I said, Laura, I've been studying this verse to preach on Sunday, and it's about to become really real for you. And I read it, God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom. And in my mind, I just envision 
the streets of gold lined with saints that have gone before, just cheering and, and waving and shouting a welcome. And, and, and I know when we try to describe heaven in earthly terms, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible to do that. But here's what I know for sure for all of us who know Christ. Faithful living for Christ brings a glorious, eternal reward. A glorious eternal reward. So I, I just ask you this morning, how serious are you about your faith? Is it like a, a hobby that you work in with other priorities? Or is it the passion of your life through which God puts everything else in your life in its proper place? So here's my next step challenge, just one today. Do a spiritual fruit inspection. Take a look at your life to see what spiritual fruit is growing and what's not. And for those that are not, begin to, to pray that God would work in you to create it. Because you know what? God will be faithful to do his part. You can count on that. But what you do and what I do with what you have, it's up to you. Let's pray. Father, help us to be faithful. We are not called to be successful. We're just called to be faithful. To let you do the work in us and through us that only you can do, but to respond faithfully so that the enemy will not take us down and cause us to become ineffective and become negative witnesses like the one that young man that I spoke of had seen and become disillusioned by. Help us to be those who reflect the true image of Christ to others so that they might want to know him too. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and for your faithfulness in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.